0: Today we're going to talk about melee combat. Welcome to the 15th episode of the Game Dev Field Guide. I'm your host, Zacchavelli. You can find me on Twitter and Instagram at underscore Zacavelli underscore, um, and I would encourage everyone to join our Discord. The open invite link is in the show notes and in my Twitter bio. So with that, let's jump over to the Game Dev Challenge. So last week's Game Dev Challenge was to Pick an element from one of your favorite games and offer up a criticism for it. And this week we only had one post. It was from CC Tech Wiz. And I want to thank him because he put in a lot of effort into this critique. It's like three or four paragraphs long, so I can't read it all. But I'll get to the main points. And I think his main points are done pretty well. So CC Tech Wiz says First off, I love the Dark Souls games, which is why I picked this game to critique. I had to think deeply about their elements, um, and the particular element that CC TechWiz wanted to critique was the bonfire-slash-fast-travel system. If you've never played Dark Souls before, um, think of bonfires like the sort of checkpoints in the game. So in Dark Souls 2, you're able to use the bonfires from the very beginning to warp between any bonfires that you've already discovered. In Dark Souls 1... Um, You kind of don't get this ability to warp between bonfires until probably, I think CC TechWiz says exactly, it's halfway through the game. And CC TechWiz makes the case that in Dark Souls 2, being able to teleport from bonfire to bonfire actually was a worse system than in the first game, where you only got this ability after you had discovered the majority of the bonfires about halfway through the game. CC Tech Quiz makes the case that in Dark Souls 1 not being able to teleport between bonfires uh, at the beginning of the game actually added more to the game uh, in sort of a less is more type situation. This is because if you have to um, discover the bonfires yourself you become really familiar with the layout of the map and how everything kind of connects up to each other. Remember that First off, Dark Souls is a really hardcore game. Um, you die a lot. And so finding a bonfire in like the dark, it's kind of like, not only is it your guiding light, but it's like a sense of relief. I think I've talked about this before uh, when mentioning evoking emotions, but discovering a bonfire after a particularly stressful section of the game is like a huge relief in Dark Souls. And so in the first Dark Souls, when you can't just teleport between them, you have to kind of know how each one connects to the next and how to go to the next one. And you know the path, and how everything's all connected because basically because of like trauma of, oh, I went that way once to try to get to the next bonfire. Um, and it's like really hard or there's a lot of monsters in that section or traps or something. And so in Dark Souls 1, you get this relationship with the bonfires in the first half of the game. And you've kind of, like, battled your way through the darkness. So much so that you know how everything connects up. In Dark Souls 2, since you can fast travel in between the different bonfires uh, from the beginning of the game, you never get this sort of self-driven discovery. You never build up that trauma to know, like oh, that way is dangerous, that way is safe, that way is how I get back to this spot, that NPC's over there. You don't know how all the bonfires interconnect because you didn't have to travel between them. You can just fast travel back and forth. I guess it's not that you didn't have to travel between them, but you didn't have to backtrack between them. You're largely just going from point A to point B and then teleporting back to point A. But a whole big part of it is kind of like the branching tree of how everything connects and going back and forth between these pathways Um, and like I said building up that trauma and experience to where maybe some ways don't feel as scary anymore that's part of the game is getting better at it it's an extreme challenge and you die a lot so it feels good to get better I think that's the main loop of this kind of style of game and I agree with CC TechWiz I think something's lost When you are able to just jump back from the end of a dark hallway back to the beginning. If you have to go both ways through the hallway, I think you become a lot more kind of used to the fear. And you like the darkness of it kind of like um, becomes more clear to you, if that makes sense. And this helps with navigation of the levels. It helps with the world building It helps the player feel a sense of, like, accomplishment, which is the point. It allows for bonfires that you've already been to to still be a relief. Um, So it kind of provides this relief factor, uh, evokes this emotion more, because if you can just teleport back, then it's, you know, it doesn't provide the same amount of fear and anxiety, and it doesn't, like, make you feel like you're holding on for dear life the whole way through. So that's the case that CC TechWiz... made. I broke it down like into its super simple points. If you want to more <laughs> probably elegantly uh, put breakdown, be sure to go on the Discord and read his criticism. But let's take a second and kind of elaborate more on his criticism, um, because I think there's a lesson to be learned from this, and this was the whole point of doing the game dev challenge. I think the reason why Dark Souls 2 as a fast travel system between bonfires is just to make it more accessible. By the way, that's not some big brain like game design thing for me, that is pretty much what every AAA game um, tries to do, which is make it the most accessible. So you can see this pattern in a lot of games. Usually the first game of a series is real like innovative and is like a shining example of what the best possible um, execution of the core game idea could be. And before I say this, I want to preface, I am not anti-AAA. I just think this is part of the business of video games. So anyways, that first game is like a shining, innovative example. And then the second game, the third game, the, the later games in the trilogy, just try and make that idea more accessible to a wider audience. This is because, you know, AAAs are run by huge businesses and the goal of the business is to make money. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, without AAA um, video games, basically there wouldn't be an indie scene. There wouldn't be video game software to make games. So we need the AAA games. We need as many people that care about video games as possible. And I think making games more accessible to a wider audience is a good thing if your main goal is to have a big audience to make more money. Which, by the way, I think a lot of indie devs can learn from um, because I think indie devs are so opposed to, (laughs) I guess, selling out, as they might call it, that they make like a super, super niche game and uh, they don't make any money. So that's one thing to learn. Uh, Accessibility is good, but it does come at a cost. And that's what I want to talk about. The cost of this system as we talked about between Dark Souls 1 and 2 is that it loses part of what made Dark Souls 1 so great which is that it's such a struggle and you're like fighting for dear life the whole time but it provides like the biggest sense of accomplishment when you finally beat the game. Or even when you beat a hard boss or clear a hard section and you see that next bonfire... There's a lot more of an emotional attachment to it. And I think CC Techwiz correctly identifies that in Dark Souls 2, it was kind of more about just doing the content. But you didn't have this, the same, I guess, emotional, or at least as powerful of a feeling of, I don't know if it's like genuine fear but, or anxiety or what, but the challenge in Dark Souls 1 to me had a emotional weight. And that's not to say that Dark Souls 2 didn't have that. It definitely did. Um, I feel like it kind of captured some of the same emotions, but it wasn't as, um, like, raw. And, by the way, Dark Souls 2, as a whole, is a very good game. Um, I think it's on par with any of the games in the trilogy, but I guess the point of this one criticism is that this element of it, the emotional element, maybe was diminished a little. What the developers got in return for that is a game that is more accessible, and we see that through being able to fast travel through bonfires from the very beginning. This is something, obviously, fast travel is a very popular mechanic. It's in almost every AAA game. Everyone is pretty much familiar with it, and it's a big time saver, uh, especially, you know, people don't have hours and hours and hours to play games, so backtracking is really frowned upon because it feels like you're playing the same content. So with a fast travel system, you can just jump around from where you need to be, Accelerates the story, it keeps the player progression going on, everything is um, very tightly uh, sort of packaged with a f- fast travel system. And to kind of make a clear point of everything I just said, this is why I think it's important to judge criticisms of your game based on the goals that you have for your game. Like I said, this is a very fair criticism of Dark Souls 2, and it's one that I actually agree with. That being said, Dark Souls 2 sold a ton of copies. I mean, the whole trilogy, the whole series has sold a ton of copies. And I think this is because, or at least one of the reasons because, is that the accessibility over time through the trilogy has kind of expanded. And I think had they gone the other way or just kept, like, the original hardcoreness, ness um, I don't know if the trilogy would have grown the same. Now, that's kind of a big if... But I'm getting off track. The whole point is that the goal of the publisher was to expand the trilogy, make it more accessible, and they achieved their goal. So if I'm the publisher, I'm looking at criticisms about kind of losing the emotional weight and saying to myself, well, it was worth it. And that's because they know what their goal was and they achieved their goal. And so I think there's something to be learned from this is that people can have fair criticisms of your games; so they could be absolutely right. So it's important when you're evaluating others' criticism, especially people with different perspectives, it's, it's important to have people with different perspectives, but they might not know your goals. So yeah, I guess that's an important lesson. Remember, the whole point of this Game Dev Challenge was to offer a criticism so that you know which kinds of criticisms to accept and which kinds maybe you can not ignore, but you know, put a little less weight on. And so yeah, I guess the big takeaway from this is that know what your goals are. And when criticisms come up, compare them to your goals. And if they are fair criticisms that are in conflict with your goals, then you know, okay, I probably should pay attention to that one. But if they are criticisms that are true and fair, but you can still achieve your goal without it, then maybe um, put a little less weight into that one. So yeah, I want to thank CC Techwiz for um, winning this week's uh, Game Dev Challenge and uh, offering his criticism of the first two games in the Dark Souls series. So for next episode's Game Dev Challenge, the prompt is going to be Give me your elevator pitch for a unique melee combat system. We're going to learn all about the things that go into a melee combat system um, today. But what I'm looking for this is like an exciting elevator pitch. Let's say that you ran into a game director during your morning commute or whatever, and you have, I don't know, five minutes, maybe not even that, let's say 30 seconds to describe your melee combat system to them. The key is going to be using the words and sort of ideas that you're going to learn about here in the body of the episode and kind of structuring something that stands on its own and doesn't just feel like a another sort of, like, smack the bad guy with the sword type thing. Which hopefully after today's episode you will have some ideas and understand the fundamentals that go into a melee combat system. And then hopefully by the end of this you'll be able to tweak one so that you can have uh, a unique idea. So... Speaking of tweaking and um, sort of the things that go into a melee combat system, let's uh, get into the body of the episode. So today's episode is about melee combat, and like all these episodes, I usually start with a description of what it is. I think a lot of people know, but just in case, melee combat is basically hand-to-hand combat. It's everything that involves swords, shields, fists, kicks... Any kind of fighting that's um, sort of up close. Basically, the fighting in video games that isn't shooting. And and people are going to roast me, I know. Some people say melee, some people say melee. I sometimes use them interchangeably when I don't think about it. So if I go back and forth, melee, melee, it's, it's the same thing. So this episode I kind of structured to talk about the things that make up a good melee combat system. And melee combat is one of those things where it's important for it to feel right. There's more leeway people are playing your games and if the fighting's done with guns for instance, if they're if you're shooting, I think that's because not everyone has experience shooting guns and so they don't necessarily know when like it doesn't feel right. Call of Duty guns, for instance, do not at all behave like real guns, and yet it doesn't really bother anyone. But on the flip side with melee combat, we've all hit things with a stick or punched or smacked things, or we generally know what that feels like. And hearing myself say that, I realize (laughs) I sound like a psychopath. I don't just like go around hitting things and punching things, but generally every person has experience with striking something, we'll say. And because this is something that everyone has um, like a lifetime of training on because it's something they do a lot just kind of subconsciously, it's important to get the feel right. And the first step in getting it to feel right is the way that it looks. And one of the biggest parts to getting it to look right is getting the animation right. And I like to think about the animation in three parts the wind up, the contact, and the follow-through. And different kinds of attacks will have different kinds of wind ups, contacts, and follow throughs. A few examples are a Warhammer, for instance, has a long wind up, right? You reach back with that, it's real heavy, it's weighty. Um, slashing and cutting weapons like swords usually have long follow throughs, right? Because they're cutting through something. And it kinda a long follow through gives it that look of like a stroke like a brush stroke almost. And things like chainsaws, for instance, have a long contact. That's to sort of emphasize the like cutting nature of it. In general, I'm not a great animator, I'll say, but in general, um, when I'm coming up with attacks like this, I like to mix up the duration of each part. So there's a different duration for the wind up, the contact, and the follow through, um, so that you never have two parts back to back that are the same. An example of this is like, if you think about a samurai, they have a long wind-up, a quick contact, and a long follow-through. So in that motion we kind of went long, quick, long. This is to emphasize a clean, quick cut, right? If we had a longer contact, then it would look like kind of a like you were hacking. But samurais don't... samurais? Samurai uh, don't hack, right? They like do these long, elegant strokes. And you don't always have to do this, like mix up the extremes, like long, quick, long. Um, And a good example of this are combos. A combo is just a chain of attacks where the durations are relatively the same during the combo, but they usually end with a big follow-through. This can look like a chain of quick punches um, or a string of big hammer swings. In general... Um, When talking about all attacks, we want our attacks to feel fluid but impactful. And small duration attacks are good for fluidity, but it leaves the combat feeling kind of floaty, right? If you're hitting something a bunch of times, you know, just for game balance, you can't have those those quick hits also do a lot of damage, or it would be really hard to balance a game where (laughs) really quick attacks also do a lot of damage. And so this sort of on-screen consequence is that quick attacks usually feel kind of floaty. On the opposite spectrum, long duration attacks are great for impact, but they can be real cumbersome, right? If the longer your animation is, basically when you press a button, when you press the attack button, the person's gonna be stuck in that animation. Now you can do things like animation canceling, and that's a little bit of a higher level technique, but animation canceling Is basically just let's say you are winding up for the big hammer swing um, you can kind of interrupt that attack and get out of it Uh, and this is can be a good way to kind of alleviate some of the cumbersome nature of the long duration attacks your game can have a mix of these small duration and long duration attacks and combos or you can prefer to pick a spot on the spectrum between long and short and kind of set that as the style of your melee system. I would recommend however if you're going to set sort of one general speed as your style that you stick closer to the middle. This will kinda help alleviate the weaknesses of both sides but also like I say with every rule or I guess tip I give on this show um, they're not like hard rules so if you wanted to go only long duration attacks and just have them all be super high impact You'll have to design around the challenge of cumbersomeness and kind of a slow feeling. Um, And one of the ways you might do that is, like I said, with the animation canceling. But yeah, just keep that in mind that small duration attacks are good for fluidity, bad for impact. Long duration attacks are good for impact, not good for fluidity. They make the game feel kind of cumbersome. And so if you are going to pick one of those styles and not mix them, just know that those have flaws and you'll have to design around those flaws. Another thing that I think really helps uh, with the feel, and this can be something you can add in small duration attack animations, is how the enemies react to the hit. Of course, you can do this with both small and long. I should be saying short duration and long duration attacks, but this is something you can do for both and I think it helps, like I said, with short duration attacks animations. They don't feel very impactful. And how impactful something feels is not only um, dependent on the attack's animation itself, right? Usually an impactful attack has like a long windup and a long follow-through. But what also helps sell it is how the enemy reacts to the attack. And this isn't something that I have like a bunch of tips for. I think to like really understand it at a deep level, you'd have to almost do a whole episode on animation itself. But I will say that it's something that you'll know when it's good when you see it. You know what I mean? Like think about um, like WWE, like wrestling, right? We all know that it's fake, but there's a true skill in those guys in selling the hits. And you can tell when someone kind of messes it up. If you do want to kind of study more animation and really understand this stuff and really give your attacks like a real juicy hit, I would almost recommend studying things like WWE and even like action movies, especially think about Jackie Chan's films. They are great at selling the impact and you could probably even like rotoscope the animations. I don't know if we're getting too deep into animation, but I think it's an important part of attacks. So I'll quickly just talk about rotoscoping real quick. But basically rotoscoping is where you take like a video and you draw your animation frames on top of it. So maybe you cut something out of a Jackie Chan movie and you draw each frame, you know, you're like play pause, play pause, play pause, and you draw each frame of some guy getting hit. If you do that, you'll have a really fluid Um, sort of attack animation, and that can be kind of your base animation, and then you can kind of work from there with how the attacks in your game are going to look. But even if you don't go with the rotoscoping method, I would say it would be a good idea to get your inspiration for how enemies react to getting hit, as well as you could probably get some pretty sweet attacks out of a Jackie Chan movie. But especially for the reaction, um, even if you don't rotoscope it, I would recommend studying professional actors, especially when you think about professional wrestling and stuntmen in action movies, I would recommend studying how they react to getting hit and use those for inspirations in your game, how your enemies react to getting hit. So now that we've kind of talked about what things go into making the attacks look right, let's talk about the actual game design and the actual mechanics of a melee system. In my mind, there's sort of a spectrum between two extremes. On one side, you have fast and frantic combo-heavy button mashing. You'll find this in games like Bayonetta and Devil May Cry. And on the other hand, you have a slow-paced, sort of impactful and strategic um, combat. You'll find this in games like Dark Souls and For Honor. Like I said, it's a spectrum. And uh, in the middle, in my mind, you have a game like God of War 4, which I would argue has the best modern melee combat system in any single-player game. It's it's really good, and it's a sweet game. I would recommend everyone to go play it. But yeah, just keep that spectrum in mind uh, when I'm talking about um, the sort of design and mechanics, and keep the spectrum in mind when you're um, coming up with your elevator pitch for the Game Dev Challenge. So, up to this point, we've mostly talked about offense, but I think it's important that in a melee system, you also have, there's a big element of defense in it. In all of these games that I just mentioned, you'll be able to find some way to play defense. They can come in the forms of blocks, parries, dodges, etc. Some sort of defensive mechanic, I think, is absolutely a necessity for most melee combat. There are some games where maybe you don't need a defensive mechanic, but I think most benefit from having it. This is because by adding this one element, you get a much deeper system that becomes more than the sum of its parts. If you think about it, if all you can do to sort of interact with the enemy is attack, and all they can do to you is attack back, it kind of just becomes like who can be the first person to press the attack button. But once you start adding in defense... It becomes a lot more about how the two things interact with each other. Like, imagine sports, like basketball, if you if each team just stood on their own half of the court and just shot, and then at the end of the game you figured out who made the most baskets. That would be super boring, but because there is defense, then you have all these interesting opportunities where people can dunk on each other. People can block each other's shots. It becomes more about being able to do both offense and defense, and I think it just becomes a lot more um, interesting and elegant. So anyways, back to playing defense. I think that dodges work best in slower-paced strategic games, and blocks and parries are great at interrupting combos, and so therefore they work better in sort of those fast, frantic games. This is just a personal preference. I don't think it's a hard rule or anything. Let me explain my point. In slower paced games I think dodges work better Um, and this is gonna get into telegraphing later but I think dodges work better because generally in slower paced games you have big wind-up looking attacks and it would look weird if you could like block or parry an extremely like long animation Like, if someone winds up with a baseball bat and then you just, like, stick your hand up and block it, like, yeah, that works in sort of, like, goofy kung fu movies, Um, but I don't know. It's really hard to get the animation right uh, for that to look good, but it sells it a lot better if someone takes, like, a big wind-up with a baseball bat and you, like, duck under it, and that's probably just a limitation on me as an animator. I'm sure that Someone who's really good at animation could probably make it like they stick their hand up and the baseball bat hits um, and it looks good. Like maybe it sends like a ripple shockwave through their arm or something. I'm sure that there are more talented animators than me that could pull this off. But I think for most of us, it's going to be easiest and it's going to look the best if you keep dodges in the slower paced games as sort of the defense mechanic. And parries and blocks for those sort of faster more frantic combat games. The parries and blocks work good in the fast and frantic things um, because remember, fast attacks don't have a lot of weight behind them, just inherently by how the animation looks. So you could block with a shield, for instance, like a couple of sword strikes, and it would look it looks good. Um, a parry, for instance, you block the sword, and the other person kind of recoils a little bit, and that looks good. On the other hand, if you tried to animate dodges with a bunch of quick attacks, or even if you asked your player to pull off that many (laughs) consecutive dodges, it would be really tough. And so I'm not saying that these things um, you shouldn't do, I'm just saying it's more challenging and I am already not a great animator, so this is why my personal preference is this way, but it is just inherently more challenging you have a dodge system in a fast and frantic melee combat style. The one thing that all these systems have, though, um, is that they help the player be good at combat, and they reward them accordingly. So like I was just kind of talking about, um, a block or parry usually rewards the player by staggering the enemy, right? If you parry someone's sword strike, they kind of recoil, you know, like you kind of knock them off their balance. And this provides the player with an opening and the opportunity for big damage. And like I talked about with dodges, I don't think this should necessarily just be in the slower pace games where dodges work good. I think this should be in all games where enemies attack the player, uh, because it's just one of those things that helps the player be good at your game, which is always a positive. But your enemies should telegraph their attacks. And basically all this means is that, remember... In um, attack animations, they have three parts. We have a wind-up, the contact, and the follow-through. Give your enemies a longer wind-up animation than usual. This will help your player see it coming, and it gives them a chance to perform some sort of defensive maneuver. If your enemies have a really short wind-up, then it doesn't give your player much chance to utilize the defensive side of your melee system. And also, it can be extremely frustrating because with a short wind-up, it can almost feel like the enemy's attacking with like superhuman speed. Even though it might be the same exact wind-up that the player has, it's just something about the computer like executing the attack. It just feels a lot faster. And so this is why I would recommend have all your enemies telegraph their attacks and have them do it by having longer-than-usual wind-up parts of their attack animations. I should warn you, though, Um, be careful not to over-telegraph, or the game will not pose enough of a challenge. And it kind of becomes more like a Simon Says type situation where all the player is doing is waiting for an animation to start and then dodging or parrying or doing whatever. So you got to mix it up. And maybe I misspoke with that last part about saying giving all your enemies telegraphing attacks, or I guess that's kind of the message I was getting across. What I kind of meant, though, was... Just make sure that your enemy's wind-ups are longer than the player's. So if it's a short wind-up attack, it should be a little bit longer than the player's short wind-up attack, if that makes sense. And remember that good level design from the level design episode we said, um, subvert the player's expectations. So if you want to avoid the sort of Simon Says type situation where your player is just waiting to see the beginning of an animation... Um, and then pressing a button to interrupt it. What you want to do is walk that fine line between showing the player and providing them an opportunity to make a defensive maneuver, but also subverting their expectations so that it provides enough challenge so they don't just fall asleep. So the last component of melee combat that I want to talk about today is spacing. Um, This is not something I see explored in too many games and I think it's something that could increase the depth of melee combat by a lot. There certainly is an element of spacing in melee combat in all the games that I mentioned earlier in the episode, but I'd really like to see a game with emphasis on spacing. If you think about it, spacing is a huge part of actual fighting, And it's why a few inches of reach a boxer has over his opponent can make a world of difference. And to be clear, when I'm talking about spacing, I'm talking about the space between two combatants. I would like to see this sort of situation with the boxer be replicated more in video games. Uh, Another good example is a spear, for instance, is great for offense and defense with its long reach. But if your enemy gets in between you and the tip of the spear then you're at a huge disadvantage. I think this can provide a lot of interesting um, sort of avenues for gameplay. And this kind of creates like a trio of mechanics to work with, right? You have the offense of the melee combat that would be timing your animations right, making sure you're, you know, attacking when you should be. You have defense that's making sure that the players are provided opportunities to interrupt the enemy's attacks And for that matter, the other way around, the enemies can interrupt the players' attacks. And then third, you have the sort of spacing and reach of both combatants. And these three things together, I think if you explored with those three things kind of working together in harmony, I think you could come up with a really good melee combat system. If you know any examples of good combat systems that have that sort of harmony between attacking, defending, and positioning. Feel free to bring those examples to the Discord and discuss and provide them as examples. I'd love to see a sort of breakdown of your favorite game if it has that sort of melee system, for instance. So the last thought that I want to leave you with is that I think of good melee systems as good puzzle systems. And you might think fighting games and puzzle games, it's like two opposite genres, but let me make the case that they're almost the same. They both challenge the player by requiring them to think ahead and execute a series of steps according to their plan. To me, it's like the same thing looking at a puzzle and seeing how to move forward and fix it is the same thing as looking at an enemy and seeing how you might defeat them. And so yeah, I think they both challenge the player in the same way and I think they both when done right provide the player with the same kind of feeling of accomplishment. The big difference is that with melee combat the consequences of the steps are a lot more dire. If you mess up the steps in a puzzle you know you just restart the puzzle. If you mess up the steps in melee combat you might die but I think it's that high risk high reward kind of thing that really makes melee combat a staple in video games. It's going to be around forever, and I'm sure that there are tons of different things about melee combat that I didn't get to in this episode, but just to kind of summarize what we talked about, these are the few tips in the kind of way that I break it down and think about it, and I think with this knowledge, you'll be able to um, design a melee combat system that's pretty good, so... Let's kind of summarize what we talked about. So a huge part of melee combat is how it looks. Generally your attack animations are broken up into three parts. You have the wind up, the contact, and the follow through. Make sure that you are mixing up these parts of the animation so that the weapon that you are using um, is kind of represented by the attacks that you're doing. Remember that combos are a huge part of melee systems. and This is basically back-to-back attacks um, chained together and these attacks have a similar duration. Um, They're either quick attacks or long attacks, but they usually end with a big follow-through. In general, you want your attacks to feel fluid but impactful. You want the best of both worlds. Unfortunately, both extremes have their flaws. Small or short duration attacks Are great for fluidity, um, but they leave the combat feeling kind of floaty. This is because they have a lack of impactfulness. Long duration attacks, on the other hand, are great for impact, but they can be very cumbersome. A good way to kind of remove the cumbersomeness of long duration attacks is to implement animation canceling. This is where you can get out of an attack in the middle of its animation. So if you have a long duration attack, maybe like a big hammer swing, uh, the player can decide, you know what, maybe I don't want to do that right now and kind of dodge out of it or move out of it. You can work around short duration attacks problems with feeling floaty by making sure that the enemies react to the hits in a sort of believable way. And in short duration attacks, maybe you want to juice that up a little bit to kind of sell the impact more. Remember that selling the impact is just as important as having a good-looking attack. The impact is something that people are going to notice right away if it doesn't look right. As for the design of melee combat systems, there's two extremes, and pretty much all games fall on the spectrum between the two. You have fast and frantic combo-heavy button-mashing melee systems, and you have slower-paced, impactful um, strategic combat That's more about big swings and dodges. Speaking of dodges, they're a form of playing defense. Having a way to play defense in your melee system is pretty much essential. Defense can come in the form of blocks, parries, and dodges. I think that dodges are easier to implement for the slower-paced melee systems, and blocks and parries are better for the sort of button-mashing, combo-heavy games. Remember to make sure that your enemies telegraph their attacks so that your player has an opportunity to play defense. Spacing is a big part of actual fighting, and I think it makes for an interesting um, twist on melee combat. And I think it works really well in harmony with how good you are at melee combat being dependent on your attack, your defense, and your spacing. And lastly... Um, there's a common thread between good melee systems and good puzzle systems, and that is that they both challenge the player to think ahead and come up with a plan and then execute on that plan. So that's going to end it for my tips on a melee combat system. I'm sure that I left some things out um, that go into a melee combat system, and if you are thinking of something that I left out, come on the Discord and discuss it. The next episode, episode 16, will be about tips for game jams, and that is timed perfectly because I'm going to make a big deal of this on the Discord and within the community for the next month, but I would like to have a lot of people participate in the next Let 'em Dare. Let em Dare is a 48-hour game jam where you try and make a video game in 48 hours, The upcoming one will be October 2nd through October 5th. And so next episode will be the episode that comes out before then. And we're going to talk about tips for game jams and sort of the thought process and the things that I set up for doing game jams and how to get the most out of them. If you want to get in touch with me, um, you can follow me on Twitter or on Instagram. That's at underscore Zachavelli underscore. Remember, the open invite for the Discord is in the show notes and in my Twitter bio. And, uh, yeah, keep your schedule open for October 2nd through the 5th. And I think it'll be really cool to have um, sort of everyone working on a game jam uh, together. I think that'll be really fun. So with that, I'm going to sign off. I have been Zachavelli. Defend yourself like Captain Falcon.